I think I was still just under a thousand pounds short when this chap had literally just paid off the rest of it and like that just kind of finished it off for me like I was sitting in the car just driving back from surgery just like oh my god I actually can't believe that this many people are being this generous. Looking at cross country, looking at the pilots that are coming up, we're working hard with indoor venues and indoor guidance and we are looking to have an indoor competition season. Obviously we're looking forward to a, a spectacular 2021 with the Olympic Games. There's ideas out there, it's just a matter of keeping social distancing in the forefront of the mind and just trying to minimise that risk of transmission. Hello, my name's Alex Seftel. Another England Athletics podcast is coming your way. On the show, javelin thrower Harry Hughes speaks of his delight after raising £5,000 through crowdfunding in order to continue his career following surgery. Also this month, England Athletics' Martin Rush and Nicholas Schedule will offer advice on how government coronavirus guidance applies to track and field. They'll also look ahead to how upcoming cross-country and indoor seasons might shape up. More on that in a moment. Now here's the first part of our featured chat with Harry Hughes. Last year, he became the first Brit to throw over 80 metres since 2012. Harry believes he can go much further, but to give next year a crack, the 23-year-old, who has screws in his elbow, resorted to raising money following his latest injury. Let's start by taking you back to when the Mark Robeson coach thrower grew up in the Suffolk countryside, where he first discovered his love for javelin. During my summer holidays, back when I was maybe 14, 15, I used to come down here with javelin and discus and walk up and down the meadow, like literally just throwing them around. And <laughs> just my grandparents' farm, so I kind of live just down the road, really. But I was lucky enough to have that space. I always had a relatively sporty family from the start. Grew up with two two older brothers, which obviously immediately brings out a, a competitive family. But both of those are really into their sport. You know, my oldest, Kane, he was um, sort of academy-level football player. And then my other brother, Daniel, he was a sort of a county level triple jumper. And I suppose it was inevitable that I was going to do sport in some way. And it started off through rugby as a kid. And then uh, and then as I got to sort of the age of nine, I then took after my brother and, and started into athletics, which is when I suppose I found the love for javelin. Yeah, you progressed over time. You battled through injuries over time as well. But just recap for us how things came together so well last season for you to make a big improvement over 80 metres. How I did that season, I think, really goes back to the year before that. So I started off the 2017 season really, really well. I was in great shape. I remember going to Bucks and I was just off the record and I, I threw a PB there and I was having a really good time. Like, you know, body was in really great shape. You know, I was looking for a big year, especially with the under-23s. And then sort of out of nowhere, my elbow just literally fell apart. What was happening was I was literally losing 10 metres overnight. I'd go from comfortably thrown over 70 to struggling to get like mid 60s like it was it was really really weird and we kind of we couldn't really figure it out you know the result was I ended up having surgery which was um you know sort of a six-month recovery so I made the decision with um, my coach at the time to just take the whole of 2018 out because it was such a big surgery and we kind of had to sort of reteach the elbow how to throw essentially so I stopped coaches um to the guy who was actually my soft tissue therapist at the time Mark and we started in sort of spring of, of 2018 and we literally just sort of started from the bottom up and you know, literally trained solidly six days a week for, for that whole year. You know, I think all of that background work I'd done for a year with no competing, with no sort of real stresses and strains. And 
I think that's really what sort of gave me such a, a good start to the 2019 season. Now, I was unfortunate that I couldn't finish that season in the way I wanted to, but at least the first half of it was um, was decent enough anyway. Just to explain a little bit about why particularly shoulder, maybe elbow injuries can be so common in, in javelin. Yeah, sure. So, I mean... <laughs> I think it's is it javelin and triple jump. It's, it's typically the most sort of explosive, mm. or sort of hard bearing uh, events in athletics on on your body generally on the joints. And javelin, you're putting so much force in incredibly weird and difficult <laughs> positions that you wouldn't normally get yourself into. But you're putting all these different forces in these weird positions at speed, and it goes through so many joints. So it goes through your ankle, it goes through your left hip, your right knee because you're turning it in as quick as you can. It goes in a sequence, or sort of from your left, your left foot all the way up through to your to your right hand, and all of the joints along that pathway often get injured in, in javelin throwers. So you see, you know, top end javelin throwers that are, that are into their career, you know, they've they've probably had multiple surgeries, and unfortunately, it's just the nature of javelin because of the force you're applying in in those positions. Hopefully, you're lucky enough that you don't get that many injuries, but unfortunately, it's just the nature of it. And I suppose I was just unfortunate to to have two in the same the same area, really. So this year, obviously quite a different year, but you decide to to try fundraising. Just explain to me a little bit about how the uh, few months, last six months or more have gone for you. I suppose, again, going back to 20, 2019, I was sort of bitterly disappointed in the fact that I didn't achieve what I, what we knew I could. We knew that I could have thrown much further. I managed to pick up a little injury, and it was so frustrating. It was such a minor injury in, in the August, or maybe even July, and that was literally as I was just coming up into my best shape. Over the course of the winter, everything went really well. You know, spring this year, despite COVID, training was absolutely flying. Like, I was in incredible shape. And then again, overnight, I just lost 10 metres again. Throwing 8 metres went from being easy to throwing 70 metres was difficult. And it's at that point where you think, OK, this isn't just a timing issue. There's something actually wrong here went straight to Gordon Bosworth, who's my physio. And because of the nature of my elbow anyway, with having two screws in there, he sort of sent me straight off to the surgeon. The surgeon literally within a minute or two just kind of very quickly decided or knew what it was. We gave it six weeks to recover and rest to see if that worked. And it didn't. I had a Zoom call with the surgeon and and my coach and uh, it was just decided there and then, right, we need surgery. And a week later, the surgery was booked in. I just said yes to it, even though I kind of knew it was going to cost me a lot of money and I had to find it somehow. I just said yes because I knew it needed to be done. But if I spent all of that on the surgery, that then meant that there was no financial funds for 2021. And as we know, athletics can be an expensive sport. All the travelling, coaching fees, the physio fees, all of those things, they all add up. And so I was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, really, until my coach just turned around and said, why don't you try and crowdfund it? The thought had never even crossed my mind. I really don't like asking people for money, but it just kind of came to the point where I just felt like I needed to. And um, I remember thinking at the time, even if I can get a couple hundred quid, it all goes towards it. Yeah, I was going to say, how pleased were you to see the reaction of the public? I was gobsmacked, actually. Like, I... So I didn't push it that hard, really. I sort of put it across my Instagram, my Facebook, and I think that was it. Like, I literally just put it on those two platforms, and like within 48 hours, I, I think I've maybe had half of it covered, and I was actually blown away. Like, I couldn't actually believe just how many people were willing to support me. People that I didn't know, that I'd never met, were just giving me money to help towards my surgery, and that just completely blew me away. Like to see how generous people were and how supportive people were and like the messages I was getting as well. Like I'm pretty motivated. It is, but 
that just added so much extra motivation. Like it was just, it's it quite unbelievable really. And, and I actually came out of the surgery. I think I was still just under a thousand pounds short. And this chap had literally just paid off the rest of it. Like he kind of saw what was left over and he paid it off. And like that just kind of finished it off for me. Like I was sitting in the car, just driving back from surgery, just like, oh my God, I actually can't believe that this many people are being this generous. I was completely blown away. Now the focus is on uh, rehab and recovery. So how how is that looking? Yeah, definitely. So after operations at the moment, because it kind of really represses your immune system, um, I'm actually self-isolating for two weeks. So I'm, I'm back down my farm in the cottage, just literally every day, just trying to move the arm a little bit more, a little bit more. Back in the gym this week, sitting on a bike, just trying to slowly build up the fitness. In theory, it shouldn't be a long rehab. It should be a couple of months and I'll hopefully be back to full training. Yeah, the, the fire's well and truly back. Like, you know, I just can't wait to, to be back in full training mode, really. More from Harry Hughes later, including his thoughts on the way that javelin performance has fluctuated, both in Britain and in terms of global standards, in the last couple of decades. Next, glad to be able to bring you an update from Martin Rush, England Athletics Head of Coaching and Athlete Development, and Nicholas Schedule, Competition Partnerships and Innovation Manager. Plenty of innovation needed this year, of course. The three of us have been discussing how things are looking ahead of the cross-country and indoor seasons, as well as reflecting on how the last few months have gone. I remember doing a, um, a video recording of me jogging along the canal near my house. Um, I think it must have been in the first couple of weeks, maybe even days of lockdown, and just thinking, where on earth is this going? Because it was completely, uh, completely new to everybody. But it's been an immense journey and um, huge collaboration huge amount of work that's gone on behind the scenes from England athletics but up front by the clubs and and other competition providers to actually interpret and then deliver against the government and the sport guidance um, that we put out the all-round effort through this summer to get from that position of individual activity that was all all that was allowed to multiple thousands of people able to enjoy track and field athletics it's been an incredible journey and um, the sport should be really proud. Nicola, give us some details on the numbers. <laughs> I will do. Um, so, yeah, like Martin said, I think in April we were thinking, what is going on? How are we ever going to have competition? But as we did, we worked through the, the summer months. And to give you guys and everybody an idea of what the community's achieved. So there's been 265 licensed track and field competitions within England. From where we were in April to, to where we are now, it's um, the landscape looks very different. Yeah, and I suppose the hope is that uh, once they have that, that idea of how to create competitions by some of the, the applications and, uh, and interfaces that are involved, such as Open Track, then they might continue to do that. And that, I'm sure, will be a, a boost to mental health, physical health, and that sense of community, I think, that I've certainly seen with all these competitions popping up yeah. that people have organised, Nicola. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned there Open Track and on the England Athletics website, we have a resources section where specifically for competition providers, we've been sharing best practice on there from, from the pilot competitions just to help competition providers put on their events and, and see what other people have done. And I think the sharing of best practice has been really well received widely by the athletics community as well. And just what are some of the basics of the, the, the current guidance from England Athletics as it stands? 
On a really simple level, it is maintaining social distancing. Um, we know this is, uh, you know, the key transmission uh, for our sport. Um, obviously, in some track and field events, that there is uh, fomite transmission, so that contact transmission. Um, but the big one is is obviously the contact between individuals and how close those individuals are. So the guidance that the government has put out uh, that we've interpreted from DCMS and Sport England and other sports as well has essentially tried to keep people apart within the competition space. Uh, and that was the sort of original premise of the guidance that we put out. Uh, and that is where we are now. Uh, there is in some of the, in the endurance space, uh, there is some encroachment allowed for short periods of time um, with a small population. And we can apply that to cross country, we can apply that to road racing, and we can apply that to endurance in track and field. But fundamentally, if we go longer and if we go bigger populations, obviously transmission risk rises and we have to maintain our social distancing. I suppose in touching on, on how things are at the present, one bears in mind that people might listen to this in, in a few weeks' time and it's a changing situation as always. But uh, it really depends on what local area you're in because it will vary across the country as, as far as facilities being open and such. Absolutely, it will. And um yeah, it, it's not an easy um, situation the whole country finds itself in, let, let alone the sport. And, and there are different guidelines, obviously, in operation around the country. So uh, any, any club, any organiser putting on an event obviously needs to look at the, the broader general guidance that we've put out, but also needs to take account of uh, any local lockdown restrictions. Uh, and that's where the, the local public health bodies, the local authorities and obviously, you know, we're looking ahead to the cross-country season, landowners and, and venue operators, they have to be taken into or consulted with and made sure that everything's, everything's okay and cleared with them as well. Currently, this period of time, the numbers are rising again. We have to be aware of local restrictions and we have to be aware that competition isn't exactly the same as it, as it has been in the past and uh, we all expect it will be, but a bit of time in the future. Um, so we have to adapt, we have to be innovative and support each other to get through these things. So looking a bit further ahead now, cross-country season, how might that shape up? We're looking at cross-country, socially distanced. So start lines, socially distanced, two metres apart. Depending upon your courses, you're going to be looking to see if you can get a, a one-lap loop within there, you know, to try and minimise any risk of any athletes crossing over or anything like that. If you're looking at, say, multiple numbers or larger numbers of, of athletes competing, you're looking at a waved approach, potentially. Say, for example, you could have 20 athletes socially distanced on a start line. They could set off. And then a couple of minutes later, another 20 athletes could set off and so on and so forth. So that's where we are kind of within the guidance. And we're working with competition providers who are looking to pilot cross-country competitions and that's one of the approaches that they're looking at, a waved start approach. And there's a couple of other different innovative solutions, depending upon the venue and the space they have available. So those competitions we're looking to pilot towards the end of October. And then we'll, we'll share the learnings from the pilots with the wider community to help shape the approach to cross country going in through the summer months so I mean another option is to, to look at it like a road race so I know another couple of providers have been looking at chip timing and setting off a couple of athletes at 
the same time socially distanced in a in kind of a road race style approach so i mean there's ideas out there it's just a matter of keeping social distancing in the forefront of the mind and just trying to minimize that that risk of transmission so so alex we're aware that a competition was run on the road or, or through a park in an enclosed um, area in within london actually and they had, I think, approaching 2,000 on the first day and something like 1,700 runners on the second day. And, uh, and what they did was they set off uh, wave after wave after wave of runner, a four in each wave, and really quite close together. And obviously it was done with chip timing. And then at the end, everybody got their time. It's not normal competition, as we know. And somebody else is looking at adopting the cycling time trial format. So, you know, one athlete goes off and then 30 seconds later, the next one goes off. Then 30 seconds later, the next one goes off and you, and you just chase around. And then at the end, everybody works out where they were in the position of the race. I was speaking to somebody at my local club last week and they'd done a trail race, uh, which was run on a similar format. And they found it quite exciting, actually, because they didn't know Obviously, when they finished across the finish line where they were, it was only when they got the results back, they got their time and they could see where they were in the rankings. As Nicola says, we're, we're working with um, some pilot competition providers in the cross-country space. We'll assess how those go. Obviously, you know, in light of that, we'll update it. And if we can squeeze those, um, squeeze those waves times down, so that means we get more athletes through, it's more like racing, but we can maintain that sort of social distancing then great, we will do that. That's really interesting when you talk about the time trial spaced out. Reminds me of skiing. You get that and you get the split times comparing them with the fastest so far or, or even qualifying in Formula One. So there's a real opportunity, I think, to, as has been said quite a few times, isn't it, to do things differently. And we're always looking for ways that we can innovate and, and change the sport, sometimes to make it more understandable, appealing, accessible or better for athletes. That That is really important. I've got to be honest as well. You know, I, I come from that traditional endurance background and, and the cross-country space. I used to run in the Midlands League up in the northwest and, you know, the site of 2,000 odd runners in the uh, in the national it is something that we don't want to lose. We do want to get back to that, but absolutely, yeah, you know, let's let's try new things when we have to, and and if they work, if we can get that athlete buy-in, that good athlete experience, make sure that you know that that club ethos, that club spirit is coming out as well. Then I think all, all power, and, and let's try it. But at the same time, you know, I'm really hopeful, crossing my fingers and touching wood that by the time the spring comes around, then it's something like more normal competition. And if not, then we'll head on into the uh, into the summer season. I really hope by next summer, then everything's great. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the pack of athletes. It's that feeling of really being in a race as well. Absolutely. Yeah, we understand that. If we can't do that at this current point in time, believe me, you know, everybody is working to that end. Right. Beyond that, then, indoor season next year, meant to be quite a packed indoor season because I think European and uh, World Indoor Championships rearranged to both be in 2021. As far as things go in the planning for events in England at the moment, how's that looking? We are in contact with some of the key venue providers, the big indoor centres, if you like, where, where most of our competitions are held. And we're sort of working out with them at the moment what the numbers are that we can have in those venues at any one point in time and what therefore competition could look like. And obviously that's just within the current government guidance, which could either 
progress the wrong direction for us all, which is, okay, we just can't access those spaces. Um, we're not allowed to gather at all back to where we were sort of uh, early lockdown, or hopefully it, it may loosen up a little bit, say post-Christmas. We just don't know at this point in time. We find out at the same time as, um, as the general wider public. And at the moment, I guess in my mind, it's possibly for smaller events, smaller numbers, uh, very local, but a little bit like we tried with track and field at the beginning of, uh, say, July time. But absolutely, we, we are working really hard constructively with those venues to see what we can do. Where we are at the minute with the government guidance, it does look like it could be possible. And, and the reason I say that is because, you know, obviously you've got all the other risks around and indoors, but it's different to an outdoor competition. So whereby indoors you don't have factors like wind speed and things like that, you could be looking at more national virtual competitions. So you can have those local competitions in smaller numbers you know ensuring that social distancing is is taken into account and and all the the venue regulations are taken into account and so i think that brings a whole new aspect of innovation that we've not really been able to have in the track and field season and i think that's quite exciting and not also just looking at the ais in sheffield or, or lee valley or our traditional indoor venues but what can we adapt and what competitions and events can we adapt to have certain aspects in maybe sports halls or in non-traditional indoor athletics venues. So I think this is all what we're considering and what we're talking about in terms of indoor guidance. It's not just interpreting government guidance, but it's also thinking outside the box of what is practical and what could be possible. And that for me is very exciting for the indoors, albeit it's not going to look like a normal indoor season, but hopefully there could be something there for the athletes. Yes, I suppose... Also, more localised means people aren't travelling as far. As far as indoor goes, there, there aren't yeah that many purpose-built indoor athletics tracks, uh, which could provide a limitation. And it, it's the same question, really, for, for cross-country. You know, Do you foresee a situation where you might need to change a, a venue because of, of a local lockdown? We're in contact with with clubs and, uh, and with other competition providers and British athletics um, with the cross-challenge. And obviously, you know, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England have different restrictions. And then within within each of those uh, home countries, you know, there are, there are different restrictions uh, in different areas. And, and we know that getting hold of venues, um, some of the traditional venues just not available at this current point in time due to local restrictions or just due to. I know down in my area, there's a there's a school that normally puts on, say, Southwest schools, and it's very likely that they're not going to open up their uh, their space, and and you can understand why they just want to keep it to their local school community. Getting hold of venues is very is very difficult, challenging at the moment. I know people are going to try and work around that and find new venues, um, but we have to recognise that maybe we're not going to have as many competitions as um, as normal. I think it's been particularly difficult for certain aspects of the track and field community. Those would include throwers who haven't been able to, you know, have the, the specific space to throw. Another part that comes to mind is, is visually impaired runners and the, the difficulty of social distancing when uh, you, you, of course, are, are tagged to your guide. What would your advice be as, as far as the difficulties that they've maybe faced and, and the patience that's unfortunately required? Yeah, I mean, thinking about when you're saying uh, um, um, throwers and, and such like, Somehow, over the summer months, people have been managing to train, albeit in very adaptive circumstances. And I don't quite know how it's happened, but we've had a lot of personal bests in throws and in endurance and across the board, really. And I think that's surprised a lot of the 
athletics community by how adaptive I guess the athletes have been in terms of their training so they have still managed to train albeit not in a traditional venue and so I think that's encouraging somewhat and in terms of guide running it was very difficult at the start because of the social distancing and and it wasn't allowed but as time went on the guidance did change to allow athletes to have a guide runner and so on and so those opportunities have been opening and I know that specifically Job King has organised a para-athletics community competition in Coventry and so there has been competitions specifically put on for para-athletes due to other competitions having smaller numbers and maybe the integration not being there or not being available so that has been recognised which I think is great and it has been definitely needed. Equally in terms of innovation we are looking at that internally and, and discussing ideas But if you have any ideas in in the athletics community that you want to talk about, then please do feel free to get in touch with us at England Athletics. Feel free to email me. My email is nschedule at englandathletics.org. Brilliant. Well, thank you both for, for joining me for the podcast. Hopefully things will go well over the next few months. Certainly thank you for your commitment to putting on competition and uh, the innovation that we've all had to do over the last six months or so. Thank you. And thanks to the athletics community. Thank you. Hi, my name is Abigail Irosaru and you're listening to the England Athletics Podcast. Well, we heard from Nicholas Schedule how athletes were managing to train despite difficult circumstances and certainly been the case, even though for some throwers facilities have been harder to come by. You have to look at stories of the likes of Serena Vincent, who was on a previous podcast, having a throwing circle in a garden, and uh, others like Scott Lincoln, Jess Mayho, the hammer thrower, using some interesting temporary facilities to get by. Harry Hughes has had some good fortune in that respect. Here's the second part of our conversation. During lockdown, I was extremely lucky in the fact that I train at a private school very, very close to home, and... Obviously, the, the school was shut down. There was no one there, and I sort of had the keys. Me and my coach, we drilled, or we screwed like a little strip of rubber into the grass, and we threw off that for, for four or five months. It worked really well. I think maybe the change in outcome during the spring of this year made made a big difference. You know, it completely took the pressure off. You knew, you knew there was no comp- no competitions coming up so you weren't training to compete and you know it seemed to make a big difference you know we were throwing really far and training was absolutely flying at the time despite obviously COVID being extremely negative we actually had quite a positive outcome from it really. I imagine that I was going to say took a weight off your shoulders but (laughs) you'll have to pardon the pun but (laughs) there's a lot of heartache for you when an injury is repeated uh, and, and comes back again but it's clear that the talent's there right and you said to me before that 80 meters is great to achieve but you want to reach that next step which is world competitive level don't you ultimately throwing around 80 meters just doesn't cut it 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 really doesn't you have to be throwing 85 meters or around that you know consistently to get anywhere so you know i know where i need to be and i know that where i have been isn't quite good enough we'll plan as, as best we can to make sure that you know 2021 hopefully if the competitions do go ahead, then we get a season where I can consistently and regularly compete. And I think that's where my big distances will come from is when I start to get comfortable and get into my rhythm. You know, I just need a full season of, of competing, which I haven't had for a very long time. Talking of big distances, what's been interesting 
is the sort of fluctuation. We're very much used to talking about the changes that have taken place in, in British javelin when we had Steve Backley and co. A couple of years ago, we had uh, three Germans over 90 metres mm. in one meeting. And then this year, Johannes Vetter is, is way ahead of, uh, of everyone else, I suppose, reduced opportunities to compete. But it's a sport where you don't, you don't quite know what the level needed to obtain a medal is going to be. Yeah, completely. It's. I was having this conversation with um with my coach just the other day actually, and we were, and my old training partner actually, and we were just talking about how, like you said, how much it fluctuates. You know, I remember sort of between two thousand and ten to maybe two thousand fourteen, fifteen. You you had the odd big distance coming out, but generally javelin was kind of at a bit of a low point. You know, twenty twelve Olympics was one with eighty four meters. Mm. The way it's going at the minute you're only going to get a medal if you're throwing sort of around 90 meters. Like that's just the way that it's, it's changed and it is all about timing. And then you kind of cast, cast your eye back to the late nineties, early two thousands. And then the distance was really high because you had to Lesney, you had Backley, you know, you had all those guys around. And like you said, sort of 20, 2016 through to 2019, the Germans are absolutely dominating, you know, all three roller Vera and Hoffman and, and Weber as well. You know, they, they were sort of smashing it and, Things do go in cycles. You know, those athletes are, are getting older every year. They start to get injured. I don't know how long these big distances will keep being pumped out for, but it'll be very, very interesting to see how it goes over the next few years. But ultimately, yeah, you do need to be thrown a very, very long way to, to get anywhere near a medal now. Def- definitely close to the 90-metre mark now. Yeah, and I mean, talking of going in circles, uh, I know that you, you've, you believe that the likes of Mick Hill and Steve Backley and, and Mark uh, Roberson will, will come round again. I suppose it just requires bringing through the right talent uh, and it appearing at the right times. Yeah, completely. It's, it's the right right talent, right time. You know, there's a lot of younger guys now, um, a lot of young females as well that are coming through that are, that are pushing through and, and throwing big distances. So I think ultimately it's just a case of having the right people around them. You know, I think I was very lucky that I had the right coaches around me the right support network around me at the right time that sort of led me to get to 80 meters and you know there's there's talent there now which is better than what I was at that age just to finish off ask every athlete that comes on if they can remember their first ever international call up and what that was like can I take you back to that I don't know if I can remember the year I believe it may have been 2000 I could be completely wrong here it could have been 2015 but it was actually uh, world schools international I've got your power of 10 open so <laughs> Oh, God, you can test me. Um, it's either that or it's the English Schools International, um, which was in Dublin. It's one or the other. Oh, yes, 20 th- 2013. Oh, was it 2013? Oh, wow. So that was the first one. And yeah, that, that was a, a massive moment. Obviously, at the time, it was the England kit. And to actually go to Syrup and then win it, you know, that meant the world to me. And I think I always dreamt of getting an international kit. You know, that was always one of the biggest drives for me was to finally get a GB or an England kit. Obviously, at that point, you then just move the bar up to the next level. What's the next goal? Well, the next goal is a GB kit. And I think maybe the next year or the year after I then got that. So, yeah, I do remember it very, very well. It was actually a scorching hot hot day. Um, so I can I remember all the little details. And I was very fortunate to throw, throw really well on my first international. So I remember it with fond memory. It must have been quite special for your family as well. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're incredibly proud of, of what I've done and being there through everything. All those seven years ago, you know, I was fighting with injuries even back then. You know, I grew six inches in a year once and it kind of wrecked my body really. Like I had, you know, I had a couple of stress fractures and 
I had these lower back issues that plagued me for years. My career path then was just so up and down. It was so volatile with injuries. But you no, know, that they, they supported me through that entire entire way and seeing me when I was injured at the lowest, going through the rehab. And then, you know, next thing you're winning international medals and they always come to my competitions and I love having them there. Your brothers support you in uh, in business together at the moment. I suppose that's what's uh, keeping you busy. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm not a fan of sitting around doing nothing. I always like to keep very, very busy, sometimes too busy. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I work with, with both my brothers. We, us three, we co-founded a business called Dangler. And so, yeah, that's basically my full-time job, really. Um, it has been since November last year. And um, yeah, we work, all three of us work on that every day. It's a fishing equipment business, isn't it? Because that's one of your sort of sideline hobbies as well, isn't it? Yeah. So again, sort of growing up in the countryside, I was always around lakes and rivers. My oldest brother, Kane, he was a he was a keen fisherman and basically it kind of got passed down from brother to brother and uh, and it came down to me and I think it's just me being competitive, but I want to achieve as much as I can and whatever I do and the same actually kind of happened with fishing. Marketplaces are kind of taking over the world really and we we kind of saw there was a big opportunity in the fishing industry to create a, a marketplace so we bit the bullet and um and ran with it you can't really call it work because you're waking up every day work with your family trying to create a marketplace in a in an industry that you love so yeah i absolutely love every day you know i certainly don't wake up dreading a monday that's for sure well hopefully things are on their way upstream <laughs> <laughs> so um best of luck with your recovery great to chat and uh, look forward to seeing you competing on the big stage again. Yeah, so thank you very much, Alex. Really appreciate that. Well, that concludes this month's podcast. Thanks to Harry Hughes, Martin and Nicola for their contributions. As always, if you have any questions, do get in touch, particularly if it relates to current guidance and restrictions. You can do so by social media or the England Athletics website. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.